Hey, everybody, this is Brian Zond. Welcome to my sermon podcast. Now, before we get into the sermon, though, I want to tell you that I have a live in-person prayer school coming up Friday night, Saturday morning, November 3rd and 4th. So if you can be with us, we would love to have you for prayer school in the upper room right here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri, Friday night, Saturday morning, November 3rd and 4th. And then if you want, you can stay around for Sunday. That's our anniversary Sunday. We're celebrating 42 years here at Word of Life. So to register, it's it's registration for a donation of any amount. Go to wolc.com slash prayer school for the in-person prayer school November 3rd and 4th. Good morning. Good morning, saints and sinners. You identify with all that. We, we are saints being made and sinners being saved all at the same time. Hallelujah. Uh, before I, I delve into this message that I'm pretty enthusiastic about today, uh, I, I have a report that's good news. How many of you like good news? You know, our, our, our prison pastor, Tyrese Barnett. Stand up, Tyrese. Give him a wave. Got to do what your pastor says now. There you go. There you go. Tyrese is uh, our prison pastor. He does a phenomenal job. And I don't know if it was, was it last week or the week before last, uh, two weeks ago, out of Crossroads, the state prison there in Cameron, Tyrese baptized 56 men. Come on. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for that. Ah, I just, when I heard that, my... My, my spirit leapt within me. I was just so happy. That's, that's, that's the kingdom of heaven coming into a prison. Yeah, you know, in, in, the, in the, I don't know, the correctional system, the, the, the official term, they refer to these as, as offenders, now, which I don't know, but that's, that's the term. But now I got to thinking, you know, only offenders can be baptized. <laughs> Come on, we're all baptized offenders. Sinners being saved, saints being made. Amen, amen. All right, this morning, I want to preach on re-enchanting the Christian soul. I hope that maybe intrigues you a little bit. Re-enchanting the Christian soul. Colossians chapter 3, verse 2. Set your mind on things above, not on things on earth. I want to pray. We just prayed it. I want to pray it again. This is the prayer we're praying all week long. This is our prayer for the week. Grant us, Lord, not to be anxious about earthly things, but to love things heavenly. And even now, while we are placed among things that are passing away, to hold fast to those that shall endure through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. I have uh, some prayers I pray every day about my work as a pastor. And one of the prayers, I pray this probably for 10 years. I pray this every day. I said, Lord, help me to be a peaceable voice of peace, drawing your church in America away from its idolatrous allegiance to nationalism. I pray that every, every day. I prayed it for 10 years. Out of that prayer, probably my books like 
a farewell to Mars and postcards from Babylon. They were probably born in response to those prayers. But about a year or so ago, maybe it's more like two years ago now, I added a second prayer. And the second prayer is this, Lord, help me to be a voice of faith, helping Christians sustain faith in a secular and cynical age. I've been praying that prayer. And I think that's probably where maybe when everything's on fire was born, was out of that prayer. Uh, I've thought and prayed long and hard about how we as Christians can sustain faith in a secular and cynical age. Uh, right now, I believe it's probably the most important work I do as a pastor and as a writer. I am convinced that Christian faith will not be sustained by mere dogged determination to be loyal to a particular religious tradition. Those days are long gone. People will pretty easily just let go of it if all it is is some sort of an allegiance to a tradition. Uh, there is the role of Christian apologetics, that is the defense of the faith. Um, there's the good version. There is a legitimate version, that is a, a thoughtful, intellectual defense of the viability and and credibility of the Christian faith. But then there's, there's, all, there's the bad forms. There are the, the pop apologetics of Christian fundamentalism where they're attempting to defend the indefensible and it becomes ridiculous. Or there is the other version, and I know this doesn't pertain to hardly any of you, but I just want to say it anyway. There is the version of the uh, tribal gatekeeper that, that you know, we are, we're the only ones with the, our little narrow band are the only ones that have the truth and everybody that's outside of our interpretation of Christian faith are heretics and uh, they call themselves apologists. Well, they're just cranks. I mean, that's really what they are. Um, but there is a place for good apologetics, but Christian faith will not be sustained by academic apologetics alone. What needs to happen is a re-enchantment of the Christian soul. So let me explain. Um, the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor famously speaks about disenchantment as the prime characteristic of our secular age. He wrote a very important book, Our Secular Age. It's very dense, it's a philosophical work, don't read it, but um, he does identify disenchantment as the prime characteristic of our secular age. Uh, that is the result of the idea that there is no other world other than the world of physical matter. Okay, the, only, the only world it is is the world of, of matter, molecules, atoms. This is known as materialism, not, not in the materialism of greed for things, although they kind of are cousins. It's philosophical materialism where the idea kind of dominant in the thinking of our age is that the only thing that's really real is the material realm. And this, this results in the soul crushing effect of modernity upon the modern soul. And we're no longer in a world that's enchanted. Um, so what do we mean by enchantment? 
Well, the word, the word kind of means to be under a spell. Now, now as I talk about this, don't, I'm, I'm not talking occult stuff. All right. You know this. All right. But it means like it's enchantment is like it's related to incantation, enchantment, in, incantation. It, it's the idea is to be under a spell. Again, we're not talking about occulting stuff. I'm talking about it was a magical time. You, you relate to that phrase? It, it was a magical time. Oh, we were there and we just sensed the magic. You know, you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's a certain feeling that, that we're present at a place or a moment or a time and there's more going on than can be seen. Childhood, if it's a healthy, safe childhood, a normal childhood, is an enchanted time where, where the magic, as it were, is all around or... Perry and I often look back, and I think it's more than nostalgia. Yeah, that nostalgia will play a role. But, but we look back on the time in the Jesus movement. And we just say, man, it was a magical time. It was an enchanted time. It was a spiritual time. Uh, there was a lot going on that you couldn't necessarily identify as something that you would see, but you were aware of the enchantment that we were living through. Okay, so there was a time when... When the whole world, I mean, our ancestors, if you go back far enough, go back a century or two, uh, they lived in an enchanted world of gods and goddesses and ghosts and goblins and demons and fairies and water sprites and everything, all that sort of thing. It was, it was a world where the spiritual world was regularly right there close to this world. And then came the Enlightenment, you know, the 17th century and onward. And what came about was disenchantment, the breaking of the spell, the loss of wonder, growing up out of childhood and leaving it all behind. And this is what materialism does to the soul. If all there is is matter, then not much really matters. And we're kind of just right on the edge of, of sort of, well, we're, you know, we're just all this absurd random arrangement of atoms. And that'll put you right on the brink of nihilistic thinking that nothing really has any meaning or purpose. So that leads us to the hope, the desire, the need for the possibility of re-enchantment. The modern Christian soul needs to be re-enchanted. Now, how do we go about this? And, and the answer is so simple that I've been overlooking it for years. Sometimes the answer is hard to arrive at because it's hard. Sometimes the answer is difficult to arrive at because it's so simple you keep overlooking it. How do we re-enchant the Christian soul? I can answer in one word. Heaven. 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 Do you remember heaven? Let me tell you, let me give you a brief, a brief summary of my history with heaven. All right, so... As I came into the faith, I had concepts about heaven, but it was probably more this idea of here we are and heaven's there, way far away in a, in a different place, a different space, a different time. And the goal uh, of this life is somehow to, at the very end, get into heaven. You got your ticket, you know, and, and you get in and you... Everything's on our phones nowadays. I think, I think, I think, I think I got it here somewhere. 
Yeah, there it is. See, I was saved. There it is. There it is. Scan it. And, uh, all right. So then about 20 years ago, I began to get enough good theology to see some of the, the uh, folly of this, what I would call heaven and hell minimalism. That's what I called it. Where, where this life doesn't have much meaning, only as sort of an elaborate SAT test for afterlife placement. And then so, so, so I began to correct that. I needed to. I say I did. I mean, a lot of us were doing that. N.T. Wright was very helpful in all of that. His book, Surprised by Hope and others, other works of his. And we began to rediscover an earthy faith that had great meaning right here and now. Amen. But that can be overdone. That can be, you can take that so far that you actually lose sight of heaven. By heaven, I, I don't mean distant place way out there. So I mean, I mean the other realm, the spiritual realm. There's in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There, there is, I don't, I don't mean the starry heaven. I don't mean, I mean, there's this world of the material realm, but that is not the only world there is. This may be news to you. There is the heavenly realm. It's not distant. This is right. It's right here, but it's a different maybe dimension. Maybe we would use that word. We have to, we struggle for the correct language. The apostle Paul says, set your mind on things above. Not on things on earth. Now, he's using metaphorical language. He doesn't mean, okay, heaven is just way up there. But then if you're in Australia, it's, you know, the other way. So it's not, it's not that. It's metaphorical language that, that there is a, another realm. There's here, but there's the above. There's a spiritual realm. But what's happened is, and I, you know, I could give you the whole history of how this came about philosophically and it would bore you and I'm not here to do that. But what's happened is we've constructed a materialist roof over our head and we're in danger of not even believing in heaven anymore. We're certainly cut off from it and that creates the effect of a disenchanted soul. I've also had something happen of late in my reading. I've had a, I've had a, a C.S. Lewis revival. I read C.S. Lewis. I read almost all of his stuff. At, well, not because, you know, he did so much, but I don't, I don't mean his academic works in myth and things like that. I mean his Christian works. And I read most of those uh, in my teens and 20s. And then I decided I'm just kind of done with that. I've read it. I got it. I'm done with C.S. Lewis. And I even probably verged on being a little bit dismissive. You know, that, well, you know, I've gone beyond that. And then about a year ago, yeah, just about a year ago, a little more, let's say 15 months ago, I returned to C.S. Lewis and I thought, well, what's wrong with me? You know, you can read something at different stages of your life and it's very different. 
I'm, I read some things over the last year out of C.S. Lewis, and I thought, what in the world was I doing reading that at 17? Because there's no way in the world I would really appreciate that. I wasn't ready for it. I mean, it was okay to read it, but now I'm really ready. And it's speaking to me in a much deeper way. In his book, The Abolition of Man, C.S. Lewis says this. Almost all our modern philosophies have been devised to convince us that the good of man is to be found on this earth. I promise you, you can get the vast majority of people to agree with that. You can preach a sermon on that and people think it's right. (laughs) Almost all our modern philosophies have been devised to convince us that the good of man is to be found on this earth. Because we don't even believe in heaven, really. You've heard people say, you've heard this, you've heard this little quip. Well, he's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. You heard that one? This is not our problem. I actually don't know those people. I know a lot of Christians that are so earthly minded, they have ceased to ever believe in heaven. And this is a problem, this creates a disenchanted soul. Um... We're so enthralled by the material realm, material world that we've ceased to believe in any other. The modern soul is disenchanted because we've sealed off our soul from heaven. We've built a materialist roof over our head and we said, that's all there is. So it's just, it's just, this is just this because we know so much about it. I mean, we, we're so good and I'm, by the way, I'm all for it. I've said this so many times, I'm going to say it again. I know of no major peer-reviewed scientific theory that is any contradiction or threat to my Christian faith. I mean, I watch all the science documentaries. I read them all. I, I'm, I'm with them. I'm there. Yeah, great, fantastic. All I'm saying is that once through the methods of empiricism, we have said everything that can be said about the material realm, we have not addressed the entire phenomenon of being. That there's more than just material stuff. What we've done with the Enlightenment, empiricism, modernity, we've said, well, if I can't see the divine realm, that is, you know, through microscopes and telescopes and whatever scope you like, uh, if I can't see the divine realm, that is heaven, then it certainly doesn't exist. Which, by the way, is nothing more than a superstition. That's just a superstition to say, well, if I can't encounter it through sense knowledge, it doesn't exist. That's a superstition. It's, it comes from religious devotion to empiricism as a religion. Another word for heaven is the eternal. Not a long time. I don't mean, I don't mean a long time. Eternal is not a long time. I mean, it's always been and always will be. It doesn't have a beginning. It doesn't have an end. It is that which is the case in God. That's the eternal. And the Apostle Paul says that we should look not at things which are seen, but the things that are unseen. By the way, Paul's no dummy. He knows how that's going to sound to people. While we look at things not not that are seen, but are unseen. How can you look at unseen things? Well, that becomes the question. What organ do you use? It isn't going to be these eyes. There must be some eyes of the heart. Uh-huh. 
While we look not at things that are seen, but are unseen, for that which is seen is temporal, but that which is unseen is eternal. So the idea is to set our mind on things above or look at things that are unseen, that is eternal. There there is the idea that this world, real as it is, is actually nothing more than a shadow or a sketch or a symbol of things that are heavenly or eternal. And in fact, that's literally what it says in Hebrews 8, 5. But the earthly tabernacle is just a sketch, a shadow of the heavenly, eternal tabernacle. So when God says, let there be light in the beginning, God created light in this world. But light already existed in the realm of God. This is why God knew of it. God can say, let there be light because there already is light in God. Are you with me? He's he's bringing light into this world, but it's not that light never existed because God knows what it is because God says, let there be this thing that we know is light. A little bit of philosophy, I know. You know who the greatest, most important, bar none, philosopher of all time is? I mean, there's no debate about it. It's Plato. Plato living from uh, 428 to 348 B.C. Plato thought correctly that light existed in the world of the eternal forms. That is what he would understand as heaven. So the idea, Plato would say, there is the good and the true and the beautiful, and they are eternal, and they belong to God. And anything that approximates, anything that begins to become something maybe good or true or beautiful is simply because it is somehow a sketch, a symbol, a shadow of that which is eternally true, good, and beautiful. Now, commenting on what Plato says, C.S. Lewis says, the sun is a copy of the good. All visible things exist just so far as they succeed in imitating the forms. So C.S. Lewis is saying, yeah, Plato's right, as did the church fathers. But modernity has made this ancient wisdom sound like nonsense to us. And this this was received wisdom that the world believed in the Western world for what? almost 2,000 years, unchallenged. Nietzsche hated Plato, by the way. Oh, my goodness, he hated Plato. Thought he was a disaster. Um, I'll say this. It's better to think of the sun as a god, as the ancient pagans did, than to think that the sun is nothing more than a ball of hot plasma heated by nuclear fusion. Now, is, is the sun a ball of hot plasma heated by nuclear? That's what the sun is made of. But it's not what the sun is. Plato and C.S. Lewis and the church fathers say, no, the sun is a copy of the good. Oh, what is it made of? Well, we, you know, it's, it's a ball of hot plasma heated from nuclear fusion. But what a thing is made of is not what a thing is. 
Now, now in modernity, in empiricism, in that superstition of materialism, we think, no, 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 no. There is no difference between what a thing is made of and what it is. So you are nothing but an assortment of atoms and molecules. No, that is not. That's what you're made of. Physically, that's what you're made of. That's not what you are. You're a child of God. You are this noble creature made in the image of God. That's what you are. What you're made of, well, we can talk about that too. That's, that's interesting, but it's not what you are. All right, so all this has been so far, I've been going, got a little clock here, so I've been going 21 minutes. Is that right? Yep, 21 minutes. And it's, it's been a lot of philosophy, which I'm good at. I mean, I, I, I'm good at philosophy. And it can be helpful, but, but uh, we got to bring it down now. We got to get it to you. So again, I keep talking about C.S. Lewis. And uh, you can read The Abolition of Man. It's, you know, it's, it's not super hard, but it's not super easy either. But C.S. Lewis didn't just write philosophical works or Christian apologetics like The Abolition of Man. He also wrote, well, he tells us they're children's stories. I think he's actually smuggling something in and doing a fantastic job of it. Actually, these truths C.S. Lewis communicated the best in his children's literature. I'm talking about the Chronicles of Narnia. Anybody read the Chronicles of Narnia? Well, you all know the line, the witch in the wardrobe. That's the first one in the series, but there's like seven of them or eight. Um, But I'm thinking about the fourth one, the silver chair. Now, in the silver chair... Jill, Eustace, these are children from the earth, from our world, have somehow slipped back into Narnia, this other world. They're in Narnia, and there they they meet up with a a creature named Puddleglum. Anybody remember Puddleglum? A few of you, yes, yes, we have some Puddleglum fans here. And in the story of the silver chair... Jill and Eustace and Puddleglum have fallen down into Underworld. That's what it's called, Underworld. It's underground. It's constructed. There's roofs and all this sort of stuff. It's not just a cave, but it's Underworld. And in Underworld, Jill, Eustace, Puddleglum come across a witch who is attempting to cast a spell upon them. And the spell will cause them to not only forget Narnia, but to disbelieve in Narnia. They will become Narniaists. I don't believe in Narnia anymore. She's trying to cast a spell on them so they'll no longer believe in Narnia. And now, from the silver chair. The witch said... There is no land called Narnia. Yes, there is, said Puddleglum. You see, I happen to have lived there all my life. Indeed, said the witch. Tell me where that country is. Up there, said Puddleglum, pointing overhead. I I don't know exactly where. How, said the witch. Is there a country up among the stones and mortar on the roof? No, said Puddleglum, struggling a little to get his breath. It's in Overworld. 
And where or what, pray, is this, how do you call it? Overworld? Oh, don't be silly, said Eustace, who was fighting hard against the spell. It's up above, up where you can see the sky and the sun and the stars. You see that lamp? It's round and yellow and gives light to the whole room and it hangs from the roof. Now that thing which we call the sun is like a lamp, only far greater and brighter. Hangs from what? said the witch. You see, when you try to think out clearly what the sun must be, you cannot tell me. You can only tell me it is like the lamp. Your sun is a dream, and there's nothing in your dream that was not copied from the lamp. The lamp is the real thing. The sun is but a tale, a children's story. Yes, I see now, said Jill in a heavy, hopeless tone. It must be so. And while she said this, it seemed to her to be very good sense. Slowly and gravely, the witch repeated, there is no sun. And they all said nothing. She repeated in a softer and deeper voice, there is no sun. After a pause and after a struggle in their mind, all four of them said together, You were right. There is no sun. It was such a relief to give in and say it. There never was a sun, said the witch. No, there never was a sun, said the children. For the last few minutes... Jill had been feeling that there was something she must remember at all costs. And now she did. But it was dreadfully hard to say it. She felt as if huge weights were laid on her lips. At last, with an effort that seemed to take everything, she said, There's Aslan. And the spell begins to break. And then the spell is completely broken, and finally, the witch is slain. There's Aslan. Look, look. When, yeah, I know it's good stuff, isn't it? And look, when there is no God, there is no heaven. This is all there is. And your idea of heaven. And God. That's just a projection of the things of this world. This is the real world. There's, that's all there is. When that spell begins to come on you, just remember, there's Jesus. There's Jesus. There's Jesus. Look, I don't know. I don't know how philosophical this is, but one of the main reasons I believe in God is because Jesus does. I mean, I'm, just, I'm with Jesus. I'm, whatever Jesus believes, that's what I believe. Whatever Jesus believes, that's what I believe. There's Aslan. There's Jesus. And we come back, no, no, no. That's all a spell that's trying to come on, upon me. Yes, of course, of course there is the above. Of course there's heaven. Of course there's the realm of the eternal. Of course there is. And Jesus says it so. Now, there are 
over 700 verses in the Bible on heaven. And I would like to look at them now. No. <laughs> How about five of them? How about five? Here's the first one. I have sinned against heaven. This is the prodigal son. When he's coming to his senses, remember? He's in the pig pen. Luke 15, 21. I have sinned against heaven. That's an interesting. I've sinned against heaven. What's, what does that mean? I've sinned against heaven. Well, heaven is the world as it should be. What do we pray? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Heaven has, well, there, there's a, a, a telos. Heaven is the world of the perfect forms, the good, the true, the beautiful, imperfection. And when we sin, harmatia, we miss the mark. We're not staying true to the telos. And so in those simple words, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against who I'm really supposed to be. I've sinned against what my true calling is. I've, I've missed the mark of my true telos to be a faithful son to my father. And this is the beginning of his getting back on course. Another one. Jesus says to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Revealed, oh, revealed, hasn't revealed this to you. Revelation is information that comes from heaven. Not from earth. I mean, there's, there's a lot to know. There's a lot here. There's a lot here, but, not, but it isn't everything. Who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Simon, son of Jonah. Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. You didn't learn that in science class. My Father in heaven. Heaven has broken through to you and given you that revelation. That's what I'm going to build everything on is that right there. Okay, a similar one. Acts 9.3, this is about Saul on the Damascus road. Suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. The revelations of Caesarea Philippi, given to Simon Peter, and the revelation on the Damascus road given to Saul Paul are the same phenomenon. Suddenly, a light from heaven. I mean, he'd, he'd set his mind against the possibility that Jesus of Nazareth could be the Christ, but as he got near Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and it changed not only his life, it changed the whole course of Western history. Have you ever had something like that happen? Sometimes revelation is not a steady, growing increase like the sunrise. Sometimes it is. But sometimes it's like a light, a bolt out of heaven. Ah, just like that. I see it. Revelation is information from heaven communicated to the spiritual component of your being, to your heart. The heart has its reasons of which reason knows nothing. Reason's fine. I'm all for it. I'm a rational dude. 
But there are things that go beyond that. The heart has its reasons of which reason knows nothing. From time to time, not all the time, but now and then, I hear the voice of God and I hear it with the ears of my heart. I see it with the eyes of my heart. There is that spiritual component to me. Now, but if you tell me, oh, no, no, there's no such thing as a spirit. It's only matter, BZ. You're just an arrangement of atoms and molecules and all of that. Well, then I am intentionally becoming blind and deaf to how God would communicate to me. I got another one here. Um, this is about Stephen, right before he was stoned in Acts 7.55. He gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand. Did, what's going on here? Does, does Stephen have access to the James Webb telescope? And he's like, wow, there he is. There he is way out there. No, no. Where is heaven? It's right here. It's right here. Ah, there's a sense in which you're in heaven. It's right here. It's right here. We don't encounter it most of the time, but occasionally the veil parts. And he sees Jesus and the glory of God right there. And by the way, keep in mind, it's not this world that is substantial and firm and enduring, and that other world is wispy and kind of floats around. No, it's the other way around. We're, all, we're living in the wispy material world that is doomed to pass away. That which is stable and substantial and eternal is that other realm. And for a moment, Stephen had a, a glimpse. Today we would call it a near-death experience. Sometimes that happens. There's that where people got one foot in each world and they report back ice and they tell you what they see. This is what Stephen's doing. Finally, last one. Paul says in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. Whew, this should have important political implications for Christians. We're ambassadors, not politicians. Yeah. We can be concerned about politics insofar as it is a good faith attempt to bring about the common good. But we are not going to engage in it in a give no quarter, quarter take no prisoners, winner take all blood sport. No, 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 because that is to betray our true citizenship. We're citizens of it. In, 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 we have no, here we have no enduring city, the writer of Hebrews says. So, you know, we will, we, we will advocate for the common good, for the polis, through political process that is healthy, but we're not putting a lot of faith in that. Ultimately, our citizenship is of the heavens, of that other realm, and we are ambassadors from heaven into this world, not mere craven politicians. So most of you, not all of you, but most of you, you got a tight grip on your political opinions. You need to kind of loosen that grip a little bit. I say, well, I kind of have this opinion. But after all, when the day is done, my citizenship is in heaven, not here. So how do we re-enchant our soul? We set our mind on things above. And I'll probably be preaching on this a lot. Next Sunday, I want to talk to you about paths 
of unseen existences. But that's next Sunday. Now we come to this table where we have what Jesus calls the bread of heaven. Jesus says, I am the bread that came down from heaven that I might give life, give my flesh as life to the world. So stand with me. Let's get ready to come to the table and to the bread of heaven. I want to to pray this prayer for the third time here this Sunday morning. We're going to pray it all week. Grant us, Lord, not to be anxious about earthly things, but to love things heavenly. And even now, while we are placed among things that are passing away, to hold fast to those that shall endure. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. All right, join with me now first in confessing our Christian faith. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now join with me in confessing our sins and receiving the Lord's pardon. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone, we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And God is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy. In the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. This is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come. Because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. Amen.